This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. The year is 2013, 14, and 15, and everyone's talking about an ice queen, a crazy man in the desert, and a little boy who grows up to be an older boy. It's the best of the decade, part two. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is normally the podcast where we are looking at AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time. But we're doing a very special uh, mini series right now. We're looking at the best films of the decade. We're kind of saluting all the movies that we enjoyed over the last 10 years. Exactly. We're talking about our favorite one or two films from each year, maybe the year in general as a trend, what we sort of thought was the most interesting. And talking out, like, do even our favorites deserve AFI consideration. Exactly. And I think what, what's been really fun about revisiting this, you know, first section of years is going back and looking at these movies that were so important at the time, but you kind of forget about because there's so much content out there. I mean, we got to get our baby Yodas on. How can we go back and watch a social network? Do okay? we have to get our baby Yodas yes, on? Yes, Amy. He's called the child now too. Just, I know I called him baby Yoda. Oh, but great. Are they going to sure. trademark that? Is nobody going to refer to their child anymore as their child because you know they what? can't because Disney owns it? I feel like you're coming at this from a place of negativity and not <laughs> from a place that baby Yoda is bringing us all together. No, no matter I'm what side not, of the aisle uh-huh. you're on, People love Baby Yoda. You're right. I'm definitely not coming at this from the position of, oh, wow, that is genius that a show created the memes first and then figured out how an episode could work around oh, it. Oh, man. Amy, um, I do want to talk to you, though, before we get into the like the main part of our episode this week, about some of the things going on in film right now. Uh, this week, the nominations were announced for the Golden Globes and also the Critics' Choice Awards. Uh, the Golden Globes did not nominate any female directors for uh, Best Picture, and the Critics' Choice only nominated one uh, female director. And this is a kind of a a bumper crop of really uh, award-worthy films directed by women. And I thought that, you know, maybe you'd have a take on that. Yeah, I mean, it's a really strong year across, across the deck. I mean, part of my take is influenced by, you know, being a critic and being in a bunch of critics groups ourselves and seeing our votes and how our votes are coming together. And, like, it's a terrific year. I mean... 
we had our awards come out for Lafka. I think they're I think they're great. I think yeah. our awards are great. But the love for all the other films under the surface is just there because the talent pool has gotten so wide and so broad to us, but apparently not to the Golden Globes. And now I'm going to have to like Natalie Portman again because like it was last year at the Golden Globes that she made a point of saying like here are this year's all male directors at right. the Golden Globes. And you know what? I hope she does it again. I hope somebody whoever has to introduce them. I hope they do that because the Golden Globes. I mean. Nobody takes the Golden Globes seriously when you know the people who are in the Golden Globes. Right. They're a joke. And they well, will just do anything if they get a free pair of slippers and a celebrity comes and takes a picture with them. I mean, that's why like movies like The Tourist with Johnny Depp and Angelina Jolie were like nominated for Best Comedic Film. It's it's kind of like, wait, what? Like, the Golden Globes is always the, what the fuck nomination is that? Exactly. It's it's kind of a joke that we take them seriously. They're really just some people who were very smart about getting on TV like 30 years ago, starting an award show. And now we all have to pretend that they know what they're talking about. But yet when you go and watch it on TV, it's full of celebrities and stars. And I think that's the a real appeal is that all those people are in the room. Yeah. It's sort of like the MTV Movie Awards with a lot more cachet. And that's almost why they nominate the people that they do. So they can keep all the celebrities in the room. You know, I, mean, I thought like um, Alma Harrell actually said this really well. Uh, did you see Honey Boy? I haven't. I have the screener. I'm very oh, excited to watch I it. I love Honey Boy. Honey Boy is a film that I really love. That I felt like was just short of getting the nominations I wanted it to get in the room. Everybody's amazing in that movie. I think Shia LaBeouf's incredible in it. And she said her tweet about you know everything getting shut out was she said, Good morning to everyone that's writing me about the Golden Globes. I feel you, but know this. I was on the inside for the first time this year. These are not our people and they do not represent us. Do not look for justice in the award system. We are building a new world. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I believe that 100%. I mean, as a journalist in Los Angeles, I barely know anybody in the Golden Globes because they're just weirdos who like free caviar. Like no. they, we, they, we, they are never considered journalists even by us. Well, that's, I mean. Even pretty, by us. Oh, yeah. Even by we us. Only have wow, we only have bagels. We only have bagels. Look at buys this, them the 1%er, <laughs> Amy, really showing her stripes. You know what, Amy? We'll keep on tracking this as award season kind of comes around. Because I think that most people haven't even seen these films yet, haven't gotten a chance to. They're just slowly coming out. Irishman came out about two weeks ago. Marriage Story on Netflix. So that allows a lot of people to see these films. And I wanted to talk to you about Marriage Story because I had a theory. Um, I love Noah Baumbeck. I'm a big, big fan. I loved Marriage Story. But I thought that Marriage Story was Noah Baumbeck's Annie Hall in an interesting way because it explores like New York, Los Angeles, and it's also about relationships and someone's like slight refusal to grow up. And I was like, oh, this is such an interesting companion piece to Annie Hall. I couldn't not see the similarities. It's very funny. I think I was really blown away by how funny it was because people are like, oh, you're going to cry. It's going to wreck you. It's going to destroy you. And yes, it it has emotional moments, but it's very, very funny. Um, but it really reminded me of Annie Hall. I could not separate the two. It just felt like, oh, this is a very interesting juxtaposition of those two films. No, you're a thousand percent right. You're a thousand percent right. I saw a marriage story um, at Toronto this year, like in September. Yeah. And we did our Annie Hall episode right after that. And when I saw marriage story, I loved it. And I still really like that yeah. film a lot. But then I rewatched Annie Hall and I was like, oh my God, right. How did I not remember that I'm just rewatching the exact same film made by Noah Baumbach. There's so much in it. And I appreciate, I mean, I guess Los Angeles and New York fighting each other about who's cool will never go out of fashion. Although I do feel like that is a fight started solely by New Yorkers because LA people don't want them to move here and we're fine if they don't like us. Wow. You know what? I would say as a New Yorker, fuck that. No. <laughs> you moved here. I you moved colonized here. us. <laughs> 
Our rents have gone up so much in ten years. Oh, that's not. That is that not. That is one hundred percent. Oh, you think that they? You think that the reason why LA. His rent has gone up is because yes. New Yorkers have moved here? Oh, a thousand here? percent. You guys were That's like, crazy wow, talk. what a reasonable number. And so they just kept raising numbers. No. You guys thought everything was so cheap. I was out here, man. We used to be so <laughs> cheap. And then all these New Yorkers started coming out and they're like, I think $3,000 is a perfectly reasonable thing. I was paying 7000 for a closet. You did wow. this to us. No, you, oh, wow. This is, a, this is a crazy hot take that I can't even get. <laughs> I can't even break down the infrastructure here. Um, but I want to, I do want to call it out. Like, I don't think that it's a rip. I just think it's an interesting um, comparison piece because, you know, I think what Noah Baumbach does so well and what I really love about all his films is he really, like, grounds you in a reality. Like, I, I, I feel these characters. And that's something that you're not going to get in a Woody Allen movie. And even as layered and as funny as Annie Hall is, it's still going to be above the surface a little bit. And I think Noah Baumbach has those spikes but then can get in these real emotional moments. You would never see... Uh, that fight scene, you know, that everyone is memeing. And I had to say, I tweeted about this, but the amount of gifts for Marriage Story to me, it's like, what are we doing here? Like, this is like a, like, there shouldn't be this many gifts for that movie. Only because, like, it's, I feel like it devalues the movie. It's like, were there this many gifts for, like, Blue Valentine? You know, what, what what's going on? I am telling you, I'm kind of fascinated in this, and I'm only now getting vague thoughts about it. But I think there is something genius happening behind the scenes, evil genius, evil genius, where creators are realizing what moments are going to be great gifts as they're editing a film together. And they're like setting them aside. They're like, oh, this is great. Uh, Everybody saw how wonderful the Star is Born gif was when that took off. Or it wasn't even a gif, like the four panel thing. People are marketing their films for Twitter memes. I mean, you might be right. There is no way that fucking baby Yoda just happens to be sipping tea when that is the phrase on Twitter. No way. And I don't care that it's a bone broth. We all know. We all know what it's supposed to be. I mean, okay. First of all, (laughs) first of all, you bring up baby Yoda again. And again, I have to just say that, did you see them? Did I bring him up the first time? Well, you brought him up again because I thought we put it to bed. Did you see this? Um, There's going to be a meme of him being put to bed. Just watch and be like, oh, tuck me in, daddy. It's going to be. I, I, I need to show you the the baby Yoda meme from Marriage Story. Did you see this? So it's Scarlett Johansson saying it's the fight scene from Marriage Story. He's like, he's a member of Yoda's species, but not a baby version of Yoda. And then Adam Driver's like, he's a baby and he's Yoda. How is it not baby Yoda? And then she yells back, the Mandalorian takes place five years after the event of Return of the Jedi. And then Adam Driver smashes the wall. Uh, which is really, um, I really enjoy it. But I was going to say, like, you would never get those scenes, those powerful scenes in a Woody Allen film. And I, and I, Woody Allen would not punch a wall. Woody Allen would like move like he might have considered punching a wall, and then he would fall over a house pit, uh, <laughs> or he'd stumble on it gracefully and be like, oh, and then he would just turn back around. But can I just say, without giving too much away, the scene that you would never get in a Woody Allen movie, the scene that moved me the most in Marriage Story, and I won't say much more because I won't spoil it for anybody, but is the karaoke scene. You would mm. never get that in a Woody Allen movie. I feel like that is I, – I that scene for me, it was like, pff, that blew me away. That, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. My best friend, Eva Faye, pointed out on Twitter that um, Greta Gerwig had a scene in Lady Bird that was also all about singing Sondheim classics. Yeah. And so now she's very convinced when she's writing her fanfic of Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach's life that they go home and they do listen to a lot of Sondheim together. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I, I – I, 
I'm in that movie right now, so I will move off it. But uh, I want to hear what people have been saying about what we talked about last week. Uh, we had a lot of good people calling in and talking about things that we might have omitted from the list. And one of the big ones that we omitted was Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which Devin, our engineer, was stumping for here as one of the best uh, pictures of the decade. Devin, you want to get on mic here and, and you want to stump for it for a second? Sure. Yeah. No. I mean, uh, it's 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 definitely a movie that I thought uh, would be worth mentioning during the bit where you guys were talking about uh, films like MacGruber that came out, didn't yeah. find their audience in the theater, but have found their audience over time. And Scott Pilgrim is definitely like that. It was you know a, a huge box office bomb, but something I saw in the theater loved from minute one, just laughed the entire time, and then was just baffled to watch it fail uh, on such a scale, and definitely has grown in people's estimation over the decade. I feel like, you know, uh, Edgar Wright's one of those filmmakers, we talked about this last week, of those mm. people that don't waste material. And yes. that movie, it does, I mean, all of his films pretty much age really well. They don't mm -hmm. go out of style. I love that Scott Pilgrim book. And I recently rewatched it, and it really does, it holds up. And that cast is insane. That cast is insane. Yeah, the cast insane. is amazing. And and kind of a prescient cast. Yeah. So many people that are, like, side players in that are now major A-list stars. You yeah, mean like from the Aubrey... short-term 12 of, like, comedy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, but by the way, you have Brie Larson in that one as yes. well. And you have Aubrey and, Plaza. And Chris Evans. Chris Evans, yeah. yeah. It's a really great cast. Yeah, and and it's one of those movies that, for me, like you said about MacGruber, just has joke, 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 joke. Whether it's uh, in the dialogue, in the background, written on a T-shirt, you know, done graphically. It's a movie that is absolutely packed to the gills with jokes from start to finish. I also feel like it's one of the movies that is one of the best comic book movies. Like mm. It really took what a comic book was and directed it like a comic book. You know, not unlike what Sin City did, but very uniquely different than what we saw in other comic, I mean, I guess graphic novel films. Yeah, that's absolutely. more of a graphic novel. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, I really enjoyed that film too. I haven't seen it since it came out, but I watched it, I think, twice that year. Yeah. I really liked it. I feel like it was kind of a caffeinated eternal sunshine. Yes. Ooh, that's an like interesting that. way to put it. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And also, um, kind of related to that, another comedy that I meant to mention and didn't mention um, that people were talking about on Twitter was Easy A. Oh, I love oh, Easy A. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I mean, talk about prescient to just pinpoint that Emma Stone is going to be a major star. I adore Emma Stone. Yeah. I really think that she is one of the most flexible young actresses we have in terms of her ability to be like serious and funny, to do pratfalls, to sing, to dance, to be like absolutely just mesmerizing in everything she does. She's so effortless that you don't recognize how good she is. And I feel like she gets short shrift for it. Like, cause it doesn't seem like she's trying, you know I mean? And she like, cause she just seems, she does, she's not, failing at anything that she really does. She just always is like putting in a good performance, but I feel like it doesn't always get like lofted up as much as it should be. Yeah, I mean, I'm very anti La La Land, but I think the only reason La La Land is as good as it is is because she's terrific. She's mm. absolutely terrific in that movie. And you believe her so much that you forget that everything she's in and everything she's her character's doing and reacting to and believes is like nonsense. Right. But she, she makes you believe. She's so good at it. Uh, well, I love that. And, you know, people also brought up the fact that we talked a little bit about The Master uh, last week. And uh, Kevin Andrew Perchel brought up that there is some strong parallels between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix and The Master uh, to Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And I thought that was actually a really interesting and astute observation. We're starting to see all these parallels, like I just said. Uh, you know, with Annie Hall and Marriage Story. You know what I realized another big parallel was? And I saw this this weekend as I was watching Home Alone with my kid for the first time. I was like, this is High Noon 
This oh, is, wow. I was like, this is High Noon. This is a kid version of High Noon. He's a man with, uh, or, you know, a, a person with an island on it to himself. And it's, it's great. It's, it's a really great movie. But I was like, oh, little kid High Noon. I like this. I love that. I need to rewatch that. I mean, that's one of the oh, first movies that good. I remember being a movie. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. Where it was like, there was a movie out and every kid I know saw it and I went to go see it and I made my mom take me a couple times. And like, you could buy it for nineteen ninety nine at the grocery store. That, yeah. That's why I remember getting the VHS of that. Sorry to date myself, but it was such, it's such a good, it's such a good movie. And what's so great about it too is the side characters, like the uncle in that movie is so fucking funny. John Candy's great. Like everybody who plays a bit part, and that's a John Hughes, I think, staple. Like Plain Strange Automobiles, another fantastic yeah. movie. Just like Edie McClurg as the, you know, the ticketing agent. Like there's all these very funny people all planted throughout. Uh, and Macaulay Culkin is so solid. I mean, of course, you can't make that movie without Macaulay Culkin, but like to find that kid and do that movie, it's it's unreal. He's terrific. I really like all the Culkins. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm a big oh, Kieran Culkin. I Roman? Love Kieran Secession? Oh, my God. Get out of here. <laughs> Kieran is amazing. That, oh, I, he's amazing. I should. I know. I should see. It just seems like a lot of hours. No, but it's he's not. he's really 20. good in um, 20 hours. It's not a lot of hours. But That's it's like, like a to catch up job. It's not like Game of Thrones. I'm not asking you to, like, to jump in. All right, Amy, do you want to get into it here? Do you want to get into this uh, week's episode? Let's do it. All right. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. The year is 2013. Psy, the singer of Gangnam Style, replaced Kenny G as the tourism ambassador of South Korea. It's the first year in recorded U.S. history where the consumption of fish surpassed that of beef. The CIA officially acknowledges the existence of Area 51. Star Wars was translated into Navajo, making it the first major motion picture to be translated into any Native American language. PayPal accidentally credited a customer $92 quadrillion dollars. Um, Pope Benedict the 16th became the first Pope to step down since 1415. The top song is Thrift Shop by Macklemore and the Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Picture. And I know we've already talked about our lack of respect for the Golden Raspberries is Movie 43. Uh, other movies that came in and nominated that year, it was After Earth, Grown Ups 2, The Lone Ranger, and A Medea Christmas. Um, so, Wow. I have never seen movie 43, but that's the one where Hugh Jackman has a penis on his face, right? Yes. I believe he has like a penis chin. Wow. Thank you for being technical. Every year I learn so much about our history through you. So I want to appreciate I did not know we ate more fish than beef. And I did not know Kenny G was the ambassador of South Korea. I know. Uh, well, I guess until Psy took over. Wow. I mean, good. 
Tell me, what is the AFI picking as the best films of this year? Here's the AFI's list of the best films of 2013. And again, these are just in alphabetical order. They don't rank them. 12 Years a Slave, American Hustle, Captain Phillips, Fruitvale Station, Gravity, Her, Inside Lewin Davis, Nebraska, Saving Mr. Banks, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Wow, it's a pretty big year, right? A pretty solid year. I mean, those are uh, award films. I mean, those are the definition of award films. Um, you know, I was looking at this year, and I was really thinking about it, and I I wrapped my head around two different films. Again, we talk about these two different films all the time, but I have to say that the one film that struck out to me this year, and then I think, and you know, we're still kind of in it, but I think that's important to be recognized, is Frozen. Um, you know, this is the year Frozen comes out, and Frozen is a rare animated film that really captures America. I mean, like, it, it, its effect on our culture is huge. What year did you have your first kid? Um, I w- did not have a kid at Frozen. Really? Yeah. I saw it when I believe June was pregnant. So uh, it was, you know, it was still, though, one of these things where everyone was singing this song. And I realized, like, this is not one of those, you know, award-winning films, but I think about it a lot about what really moves culture, what affects culture in a way. And I think it's important to, like, lift up those films that really infiltrate culture and become a part of us. And this this movie definitely has. I mean, we're right now in the sequel, Frozen 2, and uh, and it's still a big, big force. I'm 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 processing because I've never really cared about Frozen. I feel like really? I've actually done an okay job ignoring its existence. Really? Yeah. I mean, I mean, granted, there is the song by Edina Menzel, mm-hmm. um, which I have heard. I you know it's it's interesting because I have two picks, like I said, and both are outside of the norm of this year. But I do think it's it's worthy to. I don't know. I think to have to have something that creates a, a new princess like Harry Potter or something like that, like, that really gets kids' imaginations going because they will be the future of this list. They're going to look back and be like, oh, I love Frozen. I loved Anna. I loved Elsa. Um, and there's something simple about the story. It feels very basic. Like if you were to say like, let's look at you know Snow White and Frozen, I think you can make the argument that Frozen is a better film and Snow White is at the point of technology, so impressive. But I think that, you know, um, if you were to Frozen next to Toy Story, then, you know, it's a little bit more of an interesting debate. But I do think as far as an animated Disney musical, this is, I mean, it's definitely in the top. I think it's, I think it's more influential than Lion King. I think it's more influential than Aladdin. And and those are the really? two that I, I do believe you that. You mean modern Aladdin or, or ancient Not, Aladdin? Aladdin animated Aladdin, yeah. yeah. 90s Aladdin. And also live action Aladdin, yes. I, I, I mean, I'm talking about the animated. I think as, as far as like animated Disney musicals, I think that Frozen may be at the top of the heap. I have questions. You First, you genuinely like Frozen? Yeah, absolutely. It's great. You like the song? Absolutely. I like the whole album. <laughs> I like the little rocks. I love everything about it. It's great. Have I rewatched it year after year? No, but... It's as catchy. It's as like I think it's it's a big movie. I, I think that people responded to this film the way they responded to Hamilton. It like it it, it just pulled something together in people. It, it really has. 
Oh, now I'm realizing I am the problem because I don't know a single song from Hamilton. And what? that's been like a oh, point okay. of fact. Okay. I've been very proud of that. And I like to stay ignorant of Hamilton. Oh, my God. For no reason. Just that it amuses me I've gone this far without knowing a song from Hamilton. And if I can keep it okay, going, so, I think that's yeah, really right, funny. Okay, so, yeah, all right. So, let's go. Let's um, let's see what's on your list. <laughs> I, I can't have this conversation, like, with you because I, I'm just going to say I think it's an important Disney musical. Uh, and maybe not as important as some of the other films on that AFI list. Is this list. like when you told me about the existence of Baby Shark? Oh, maybe. I mean, look, I'm I'm not even coming at this movie as a dad. And that's that actually is an interesting point of view, too, because I saw this movie just because people were talking about how good the movie was. And uh and and I enjoyed it. And it's and you know, I'm cynical and I, you know, I I've sat now in theaters and watched a lot of mediocre animation. Uh and this uh, this got me. And I'm talking frozen one, frozen one. I wanna say, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I am very happy that this movie makes you happy. <laughs> Did that come across? Yeah, well? no, but I mean, look, I, I, and it's and it's less about me saying this is my favorite movie and me saying that I think that needs to be recognized as an important film. You're right. You're right. You're right. I do think I have a thing where when I find myself with a really fascinating amount of apathy towards something, mm-hmm. I almost just don't see it anymore. Right. Like, do you remember that there was that old episode of um, – What's that British show, Black Mirror, where, like, if you break up with somebody, you can tune them out of yes. your consciousness? I think I did that with Frozen. I like the it. way I've done it with Hamilton. I sort of enjoy walking through the world with just big fuzzy patches. I so mean, this look. This is probably as much about me as it is about your capacity for joy. Well, look, I'll tell you this much. Uh, I did the same thing when people were talking about The Sopranos. I never watched an episode, and then I finally watched an episode of it, and I was like, oh, yeah, I get it. It's actually fantastic. It's a really brilliant show. That's true. I uh, just feel like there's a luxury in being able to tune something out in popular culture. So, like, I never saw an episode of The Sopranos either, and it's kind of been nice. It's been right. nice having a buzz that I never have to care about. No, I hear that. I, I, I like that idea, too, to kind of, like, pick and choose what you are interested in. But let me hear what you're interested in. For this year of 2013. Well, I feel like I should maybe make it fair mm-hmm. by, and this is this is not a film I'm putting on the list, really, or even putting up for for consideration, but yeah. it's a film that I really care about and just want to take a second to talk about it. Sure. And that is Ben Stiller's version of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Wow, interesting, Amy. Did you I, see I, that? I saw it. I saw it before it even came out. That's how much I saw that movie. I really love that film. Really, so this much. is your and, and so you're talking about a woman who is telling me that she doesn't have joy in her life. Is talking about a movie about a man who is trying to find joy in his life. Yeah, maybe I identify. I don't know. Okay, interesting. I don't know. I mean, this again. This is not really my pick for the list, but this is a film that I feel like everybody dumped on because I think there's kind of a thing where we don't take a Ben Stiller movie seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think Ben Stiller has this big, big, big bleeding heart that I always find myself drawn to in his films. He did this film called Brad's Status. Oh, about yes. Like, you know, a middle class guy trying to see if he can afford his kid to get into a, a rich school. And yes, it's it's very, 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 very white people problems. And yet that film is really beautiful. And The Secret Life of Walter Mitty is really beautiful. And I just... I don't know. I saw that film kind of expecting to roll my eyes through it and then immediately went back and saw it again and cried. And I just – I kind of want to say that if you were never interested in seeing The Secret Life of Walter Mitty because you're like, oh, I'm sure it's dumb and it's Ben Stiller, it is actually beautiful. It's incredibly well shot too. It's a beautiful looking film and great cast again. I love this idea, the Walter Mitty story, and I think it was really – I think it was really well done. I like that movie. I kind of think of it as like a bridge movie in a stiller filmography because it has a lot of great drama in it. 
Uh, and it also still kind of plays in the comedic. I think what I was hoping the movie would do a little bit more is have some more of those comedic uh, big moments. And I feel like in an attempt to kind of make the drama land, they kind of skimp a little bit on the comedy. I think it would have been interesting to see if you could really balance the absurd and the and the realistic. And we're talking about that a lot today. Like, again, Noah Baumbach, who works with Stiller a lot, Woody Allen, who I think is also sharing DNA with Stiller. All these guys, New York guys, come from this uh, very specific thing and kind of finding that unique balance of absurdity and reality and, and emotion and pathos. It's true. Like I think if there is a frequency I tend to really tune into as a critic, it is movies with that kind of absurdness to it where they're getting at something very real but in a heightened way Yeah, is my favorite thing. Like that too, If that was like a giant milkshake, I would just be devouring that all the time. Like that's you would what drink I love. that milkshake? I would drink it all up. I love that. I love like stuff that is heightened to get to what's true. I like that. Uh, it- so, But that is not my pick of the year. I mean, I just wanted to squeeze it in because why not? Um so other things I thought about in Discarded, I thought about Spring Breakers, which I just yes. thought was like, I mean, it mm-hmm. took Indie World by store, but it was sort of disposable, but kind of fun. I totally agree. It's such a fun movie. Pain and Gain, the same thing. That oh, really? Bay. Not Did not like that movie. Oh, really? I thought that movie would be so much better if it was directed by like the Coen brothers. Like that was a story that I feel got washed up. Great cast, yeah. right? Uh, and- amazing story, but I felt like it leaned a little bit into like action movie territory to a certain degree where I think it could have been sloppier and more fun. I I, I just feel like tonally it didn't hit the things that I wanted it to hit. And I, and I like elements of it. Um, I just wish, I mean, that's one of those movies I was like, oh man, I wish it was just that everything the same but just a different director. And that's Michael Bay. And I appreciate Michael Bay doing, uh, taking a shot outside of his comfort zone. And and I think he was very passionate about it. But I think there's still an element of the guy who's directing like Transformers and these big ass action movies that he can't really escape from in that movie. And while there are really great performances in, in there too. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Honestly, when I think about that movie, the main thing I think of is just everybody's pants. <laughs> right neon pants. They're great. Um, what I ended up going to going to was Spike Jones's Her. Ooh, yes. I really, really, really adore yeah. this movie. You know, this is the one where Joaquin Phoenix, it's a slightly futuristic version of the world where everybody has an operating system that is intelligent. It learns mm-hmm. how to deal with your phone. Um, and operating systems do actually flat out terrify me. But in this world, lonely Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with his phone, who's voiced by Scarlett Johansson. And it's this film where, yes, in a way, there's like the sci-fi kind of mild satire happening. Right. About how, yes, we spend way too much time with this thing. Like, oh, now I have my phone is even looking at me and I just want to push it over there. Right. But you're really in a fight like, with your phone. I know, but I am kind of in a fight with my phone. My phone and I are in a really bad relationship, honestly. <laughs> but everybody in this world is kind of missing each other and hoping for connections. You know that that Joaquin Phoenix's job is he's writing letters to people that they can't write themselves to their loved ones. You know, he's writing boyfriend letters and parent letters. Everybody's reaching out and trying to duplicate human right. emotions and they can't. You know, that his upstairs neighbor, Amy Adams, is, you know, creating video games about motherhood. Everything is like this replicated version of human experience. And it's kind of about us in this moment where we're all kind of spinning out a little bit more from being connected yeah. as people. And the phone is just one other way that that's happening. Yeah, I totally love this film. And I love Joaquin in this film, but I also love the voice of the phone. Now, it's really interesting, though, because 
the actress that was originally the voice of the phone, who was literally in a box off to the side of the stage, who he was interacting with, and I think they have this amazing chemistry, is not the voice actually in the film. In the film, it's Scarlett Johansson. She's great. In the film, or actually in the shooting of the film, it was Samantha Morton. Um, and I just, I always think about that in the film. It's, it's, it's interesting because I think that Samantha Morton maybe helped Joaquin get this amazing performance and she doesn't get her due for actually being the, the voice of the phone. Cause that relationship is such an integral part. I mean, it is the movie. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a relationship film. And uh, I, I don't know why I always think about that in that film, like that, that little disconnect. It's true. Like, I think what I heard went wrong and nobody's ever really said it outright is that when Spike Jones directed Samantha Morton in the box, and Samantha Morton's a great actress, yeah. he directed her to do it slightly more roboticy, you know, oh, okay. to be slightly more of a computer, because I think he thought that was what he, the film he had in mind. Right. Was for her to be like, yes, let's go out and have a great day. Right. What and then Siri in the editing room, like- he sort of realized he, he needed a more human voice, and Got he just it. swapped it out. But I think that, that was, I think in a way, he's been cagey about it because I think it's more of a my bad. Situation. Yeah, and of course you don't want to like look like you're shitting on Samantha Morton going like she didn't do her job the right way. It's 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 a tricky thing. I mean, even in There Will Be Blood, you know, Paul Dano before he's in there, there's another actor in there. You know, it's it whenever you publicly fire anyone, there could be a myriad of reasons, right? But I think the classier directors and and producers try to avoid it, but it gets it gets out. Um It does. And I pulled a clip from her because I thought it reminded me of something from last week. Which is if there is a trend so far in the first couple of films, it's that um, Rooney Mara gets to show up and be the voice of reason. Ooh. So this is Rooney Mara talking to Joaquin Phoenix. She's his ex-wife. So what's she like? Well, her name's Samantha, and she's an operating system. She's really complex and interesting. Wait. It's only been a few. I'm sorry. You're dating your computer? No, she's not just a computer. She's her own person. She doesn't just do whatever I say. I didn't say that. But it does make me very sad that you can't handle real emotions, Theodore. They are real emotions. How would you know wh- what? Say it. Am I really that scary? Say it. How do I know what? How are you guys doing here? Fine, we're fine. We used to be married, but he couldn't handle me. He wanted to put me on Prozac, and now he's madly in love with his laptop. Well, if you'd heard the conversation in context, what I was trying to say... You always wanted to have a wife without the challenges of actually dealing with anything real. I'm glad that you found someone. It's perfect. Wow, I love that. Yeah, she just comes into every film, and she's like, let me tell you what your problem is, man. (laughs) But yeah, that's my pick. And also, if I can say something really superficial about this film, I love all the fashion in it, especially Amy Adams's little button-ups that she wears, all the pastels yes. and the sweaters. And I've spent my life trying to find those clothes, and I can't. Well, Spike Jones did a great job of like creating a future that felt very tangible and realistic, but it didn't feel like our time. And I love that. I love that subtle distinction of making it futuristic, but not like we're in an alternate future or something like that. I, I love... I love all that. Now, my question to you is, did you love Jexy as much as her? Jexy? Jexy? You did not see Jexy? Came out this year, yeah. Adam Devine falls in love with his phone. No, I did not see Jexy. I'm not even making a statement about it because I have not seen Jexy. But I did find it so interesting that Jexy 
is exactly her, but I guess leaning more towards the comedic. It's uh, got a great cast, but I was really struck by it. I was like, this is just her. This is her. (laughs) All right. So, Amy, I told you that I had two picks. I wanted to talk about a couple films. I think that Ryan Johnson did such a great job of talking about Under the Skin that I'm not even going to get back into that. But the movie I wanted to talk about as well was the end of a trilogy here in this year, which was Before Midnight. Oh, I'm glad you're saying that. Because I love these movies, uh, all three of them. And it's one of those uh, great trilogies that I think is on the side. And I don't know if Before Midnight is my favorite one of them, but what I love about uh, Linklater and what I think he does, and we're talking about it later on too, is is he tracks the growth of these performers and he creates these sequels that are unlike anything that we have in modern film, modern narrative film. And there is something so wonderful about this relationship and the conclusion of this relationship. Uh, and maybe it's not the conclusion, who knows? But I would argue that these three films are important, you know, uh, and I love them all. And this one is a little bit sadder than the others, but also uh, just a great chance to kind of revisit these characters. And Before Midnight was a real, like a real treat. And it just came, it came out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting it. And it was, uh, it's, it's a great way to kind of see these actors. And, and Ethan Hawke is a guy who I think I continue to have more and more respect for. I feel like he was this like hot, you know, kind of, brooding guy who came out of like New York and, you know, was in reality bites. I think he was, he could have went in one direction and, and, and he's kind of gone in this other direction. Interesting to talk about reality bites because Ben Stiller, another interesting uh, Ben Stiller movie, but he's just continuing to make these really interesting films consistently over and over again. And, and uh, I love him in this. And I love Julie Delpy. She's so good too. And she kind of did her own version of this uh, with Chris Rock uh, a couple years ago yeah, as well. Yeah, like a day in New York and then it should like a day in Yeah, she yeah. has these day movies. Yeah, so I, I just think these movies are worth uh, watching. And here's a clip of just uh, a little fun scene from that film. And I am not in conflict about it, okay? But if what you want is like a laundry list of all the things about you that piss me off, I could give it to you. Yeah, I want to hear. Okay, well, uh, let's start at number one. Okay, number one, you're fucking nuts. All right, you are. Good luck finding somebody else to put up with your shit for more than like six months, okay? But I accept the whole package, the crazy and the brilliant, all right? I know you're not gonna change and I don't want you to. It's called accepting you for being you. Yeah, okay. I asked you a question. If while I was carrying that double stroller down the stairs and getting ass raped in Pigal, you fucked that little Emily Bronte girl. Okay, I, I don't know what em- what what Emily, what are you even talking about? The one that wrote the nice emails about Dostoevsky. Oh, Jesse, you're so right. The Grand Commander is the deepest message of all of Russian literature. If uh, you're asking me if I'm committed to you, the girls, and the life we built together, the answer is a resounding yes. So you did fuck her. Thank you very much. So yeah, so that was a movie that I really just wanted to give attention to. And I don't know which one I would pick. And I kind of, again, view all these movies as one. And and I kind of do that a lot when I think about the AFI list, especially a movie like this or Lord of the Rings that are so a part of each other. You know, they're not, they, you, they can't kind of be singled out uh, in a way. Even though they are separate films, I feel like they are telling one kind of, 
great story. Yeah, no, I think that's a great pick. And to your point about Ethan Hawke, especially as an actor, I think of him as one of the most prescient actors we have in Hollywood today. Mm. Because he, to me, seems like the very first big name who realized that the future of making movies is that budgets are going to drop dramatically. And you should just take points or percentages later on and not worry about salary. And then do that to make more interesting work. I think he really early on was like, yes, because one of his best friends from the 90s going all the way back is Jason Blum of Blumhouse. Oh, wow. And so he was really early on in doing like the Purge franchise and in in doing these more lower budget movies and lending stark credibility to it. And I think in a way, the fact that we have really interesting indie movies with movie stars in them today is because he sort of set the template. People were sort of surprised that Ethan Hawke was going to be doing a low-budget horror film, but now so many great actors are doing low-budget horror films, low-budget lots of things. We talk about her a few times already, but Scarlett Johansson is another great example of someone who I think does a big-budget film for them and then does the most interesting work. Under the Skin is one of those great examples, but I feel like she's always popping up, you know, whether it's Marriage Story, it's her, whatever. She's really one of those actresses that... I feel like her body of work and her, you know, her connection to smaller material is amazing. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, that's my favorite thing about seeing people try to use their power for good. You yeah. Even when Chris Evans directed his own film, yeah. did really, he did like a little romantic comedy. I can't remember the I name. I remember that. Yeah. It was but- charming. I was like, thank you, Chris Evans, for like using your Marvel clout. To try to make this little film on well, your Well, that's what I think the best thing about Marvel is. It gives these actors a chance to really finance these films worldwide because they are a worldwide star. I even think that a movie like Chef, you know, where Favreau goes and makes his own film, he can, you know, he it allows, I don't know, an artistic freedom that you don't often get. And whether or not you like the end product, it it's less important, but it's as cool that people can make it. You know, and I think that, like, I like that world that we live in where it's just sort of like, yeah, I want to, I can get a budget for this, and why not? And why not, you know, bring attention to your smaller project by, you know, popping in one or two Avengers in there? It's true, although if I do have a problem with the fact that the Avengers franchises won't die and how that affects the actors and what they do on the, on in between, mm-hmm. it's more even for the men, I think, than than the women – but that the men have to stay so buffed up in order to keep coming back and doing these like superhero movies that whenever they duck out and they're like, no, I'm just a guy who works at an ad firm. And you're like, no, you're not. Like That doesn't work. <laughs> they, they, they get so big that they can't play normal people. In That's why I think Paul Rudd does it the right way. Paul Rudd always looks about the same when even when he bulked up for Ant-Man, it wasn't too, too intimidating. It's, it's about right. <laughs> I think I think Paul Rudd's got the right, the secret sauce on that. Um, all right. So that is 2013. Uh, so many great movies. And I'll just mention it as we walk out too. I'll say like the con- Wandering, very good movie that year. Not one that I put on the list, but I think it's a it's a it's an interesting uh, ghost story. That's fair enough. And you know, I didn't give them enough applause for this at the beginning, but of the of the AFI 2013 list, I think they actually did a pretty good job this year. Yeah, they have lent some support to like newer filmmakers, Fruitvale Station mm-hmm. for one. You know, oh, saying yeah. like we're keeping an eye on you, and that was a great eye to be keeping on people. Uh, also, a Twelve Years a Slave. Um, and also they're like, you know, f- applauding things like Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. It feels like a more balanced year than usual to have Inside Lewin Davis and Nebraska on that list. I like yeah. both of those films a lot. Me too. That's a great that's a great year for film. I mean, this is a tough year to kind of even narrow it down. 2013. I, I love when everything kind of converges. We talked about this earlier. I think this is a year where everything is converging. We're having so many different types of films. And it's, it's exciting. Like, I've, there's so many films out that I want to see. There's so many films coming out that I, I can't wait to see. So 
that's exciting uh, as a film goer to have all these different voices popping up. Uh, it seems like it goes on like two or three year cycles. Uh, you know, because like, I think all these great films are made and then those directors kind of reload and then new directors are coming up and it's, it's an exciting time. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, uh Hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew. Grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. is 2014 Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 disappeared without a trace. The ALS Association received over $100 million in donations compared to under $3 million the year before thanks to the Ice Bucket Challenge. Guinness awarded the Betty White as the longest TV career for an entertainer. And during its 10 theater and three-day opening, United Passions became the absolute lowest opening film in U.S. box office history, grossing only $941. The top song is Happy by Pharrell, and the Golden Raspberry Award went to Saving Christmas. Uh, Other films that were up for Razzies that year were Left Behind, Legend of Hercules, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Transformers, Age of Extinction. And what did the AFI salute this year? The AFI gave their awards to American Sniper, Birdman, Boyhood, Foxcatcher, the Imitation Game, Interstellar, Into the Woods, Nightcrawler, Selma, Unbroken, and Whiplash. And actually, I was going to read out the full title of Birdman, but then I thought I'd try to pop quiz you and see if you remember it. Wow. I, you know, I know it has a title like kind of like that Fiona Apple album, right? It's, it's a much <laughs> longer thing where it just keeps on going on, right? Yeah, it's got an or and then a parenthetical. Oh, boy. Um, I don't remember it at all. Uh, what is it? All right, I'm going to give people three seconds at home to scream in the answer into their headphones. One, two, three. Birdman or, parenthetical, the unexpected virtue of ignorance. Ooh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> you know, Birdman's a really interesting film to me because it's a film that won a ton of Oscars in this year. And it's a visually stunning film. You know, this uh, cheated one shot. And I say that not in a way that... It, you know, the whole film isn't one shot, but there's large chunks that are one shot. It's beautifully acted, but it's a film that I feel like its resonance has kind of not stayed with us. And we talked about this uh, on the last episode, like the artist, there are these movies that we get so behind and then we quickly grow out of them. And this is a year, I would say, arguably all the films that you read on that list were very big Oscar films. People were very excited about them, but I don't know which one has stood the test of time. Not saying that they are bad films. I actually really love a lot of the films on this list, but which ones are the films that people are revisiting? Which ones have actually made a dent in our society? 
Yeah, right. Because I mean, I enjoyed Foxcatcher a lot. Yeah, have not thought about it since. I love Whiplash. Whiplash has amazing performances. Just a great uh, theater experience. Very unnerving. And but again, not a movie that I've thought to rewatch. No, I have not rewatched Selma. To be honest, right. I have not rewatched Unbroken. I really felt like Angelina Jolie just missed the whole point of Unbroken anyway mm. when she made that movie. Um, and I have huge negative opinions about American Sniper. That <laughs> film is so vile. I was actually talking about it on the radio this week because, you know, Clint Eastwood mm-hmm. making up things again about right. the lady reporter in Richard Jewell. He is so bad when it comes to telling the stories of real history. Like Richard Jewell, he makes up a thing. He says like, oh, right. she's totally slept with her sources. American Sniper, he just leaves out all the crazy stuff. Like the guy in American Sniper what like bragged about like, shooting people from the roof of the Superdome. He said that he once, like, stopped a carjacking at a gas station by shooting the carjackers. He made up all of these lies, and Clint Eastwood just deals with it by leaving it all out. He doesn't He, he doesn't even get into it. And my great conspiracy theory, the one thing I want to know in the world, is if you go to the IMDb page for American Sniper, yeah. it says carjacker number two somewhere in the bottom of the credits. It oh, credits wow. a carjacker number two, which makes me think he shot that scene and then cut it out because, I don't know, maybe he found out for sure the guy was lying, which everybody in that area of Texas denies it. Right. All of the sheriffs are like, what? Wow, that's crazy. You know, and, and the craziness kind of continues. I mean, there's a whole legal battle with Jesse Ventura and the late Chris Kyle because he basically was like, this guy is a liar. And they got into like a defamation case. It's it's a really thorny um, biopic. And I think it's interesting when we make a biopic in the moment or not so far enough removed we don't have the ability to kind of uh, sift through the facts or really let uh, cooler heads prevail. But, you know, we talked about this a little bit with uh, Social Network as well. It's You kind of have to go above the biopic and tell something about what's going on in society. And I think when you stick right to the person, it may be a little bit more of a bumpier road. I agree. And that's why out of all of, say, this year's Golden Globes, most of which I think are kind of... Arg. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that I like the best actually is that they're recognizing Rocket Man, the oh, biopic yeah. of of Elton John, because it's fantastic and right. it ha- it does that thing of spinning it into a world of creativity, of making it bigger and more colorful, right. and kind of and saying no, don't take us seriously. I am singing the bitches back as a child in England. Of course, I wasn't singing right. the song as a child, and Taron Edgerton is just fantastic. So I I really appreciate that kind of a biopic when they're not like. We are an absolute retelling of history that is full of lies. My name is Clint Eastwood. No, I, I feel like, you know, this new version of biopics or especially these uh, like Rocket Man, it's a fun way to do it because it feels like those Broadway shows that are, you're there for the entertainment value of it. You're enjoying it. You're going to maybe learn a little bit, but it's not saying this is fact. I will say that this year, while the independent films are great, amazing performances. What I kind of want to focus on in this year are the great popcorn films of this year. I mean, because this is a year where you have Guardians of the Galaxy and you have the Russo brothers coming on to Captain America, the Lego movie. You have uh, John Wick, Babadook. To me, I feel like this- Neighbors. I love Neighbors. Oh, Neighbors, great film. So there's a lot of really fun stuff released this year. And I would argue that some of the commercial films this year make a bigger cultural dent than some of the artistic films. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the artistic, artistic films, the ones that really pop are more like Boyhood. Yes. You know, Boyhood kind of spinning off the conversation we just had about Before Midnight in the last one. Actually, between the two, I kind of prefer the Midnight trilogy to the Boyhood film. You know, I was thinking about uh, that as well. Yeah. I think that if I was to canonize... 
one of them, I would do the trilogy over Boyhood. Boyhood is impressive as a filmmaking feat. Whereas the before trilogy, I think, are more entertaining films. I think they're able to kind of get into a deeper resonance about what he wants to say with these characters. Whereas Boyhood just hinged on like, how comfortable is that boy going to be growing up in front of the camera later? What kind of a person was he going to be? And he turns out to be... You know, a great like a person I'd want to be friends with, but not a person who really makes the stuff of a movie. Right, I understand that. It it, it kind of has that feeling of a doc, like Hoop Dreams, where you're going back and kind of capturing people at different points in their lives, but it's done in a narrative way. And I, I'm all for Linklater in the fin- sense that he is consistently trying things and doing things that feel very different. And that was an important movie just to feel like, yeah, we should be making more of this. The same way that Soderbergh makes movies and, and, you know, they're, you know, maybe one or two takes and they're shot on an iPhone and they're just, I, I love that energy of not being necessarily precious, but being inventive and exciting as a filmmaker. Yeah. And that he did it so low key. I remember going to Sundance when Boyhood premiered and I, it was not on my radar. And suddenly was like, did you know that he made this secret film? And look at this. And we yeah. were all like, what on earth? And just really impressed by that, that he pulled it off, that he did it so well, that it was so low-key. I remember thinking that Linklater's own daughter was the most interesting character in that movie. Yeah. And when she grew up and decided she didn't want to be in the project anymore, totally, absolutely, her fine call, I was like, oh, the movie's a little bit less interesting. Yeah. She was so fantastic. I did want to ask you, though. One of the films we ran by really quickly that was on the AFI list is Into the Woods, the Stephen Sondheim musical. What? That's on the list? That's on the list. And I wanted to ask you if you think Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach have made out to it. <laughs> made, no. They're not. Maybe the soundtrack, <laughs> yes. You don't put that movie on in the background. That's not a make-out movie. Cannonball <laughs> Run's a real make-out movie. Oh, Josh, you want to say Oh, something? yeah. I just wanted to point out, because it's so on point with what you're talking about, that the next uh, Richard Linklater project supposedly is going to be Merrily We Roll Along, told over 18 years with uh, Beanie Feldstein in the lead. Oh, my wow. God. We're going to watch Beanie Feldstein grow up for 18 years? Yeah. I, I, like I that. love that. I love her. She's the best thing on the planet. I but, really like that. Well, I mean, that's really confident... Never mind. I'm, I don't want to jinx his health. Sorry. I'm not going to jinx anybody's health. I'll just Look, be Clint over Eastwood's here. still making movies. He's fine. Keep healthy. It's like, <laughs> I mean, it, it actually was really hard for me to, to pick a film because I wrestled with Boyhood. But then I went back and I said, well, but I like the Before Trilogy more. And then I wrestled with John Wick because I was like, well, John Wick is such a fun, exciting movie. And it and, you know, then I, I think about, would I rather have John Wick or The Matrix on the AFI list? And I think I would rather have The Matrix on the AFI list. And and I do, you know, I went back and forth, and I know I brought up Fast Five as a movie that was important for pop culture. And I do think that there's an element of John Wick that is brought out by Fast Five, and, and Fast Five is a little bit before it. I mean, I, I don't know, Lego Movie I wrestled with as well. I just, it, Lego Movie is such a fun way of doing animation in a different way. And I, and I love to salute animation. I also just love that Disney couldn't have Star Wars. So they made Guardians and then they get Star Wars, but Guardians becomes its own kind of like combo between Star Wars and, and Indiana Jones, which is really fun. And, and the Those Roos- plucky little upstarts. <laughs> Don't, do they also own Indiana Jones? Uh, yes. I mean, they own everything in Lucasfilm. Um, but yeah, so it was a hard, it was a hard one for me to wrestle around because I also really appreciate Birdman. And, and um, I'm curious to see what you picked uh, because I, I think I picked one and I, and I have a caveat to it. So uh, what did you pick? I picked two things. Okay. But I'm going to start with one that I didn't pick, but came very close to picking. Okay. Because it actually, I think, had a huge impact real world, physical, tangible, still seeing the effects of it today. 
And that is the interview. Do you remember the interview madness at the end of the year when when they found out that North oh my Korea God. Yes, hacked totally, into yes. Sony and then, and then Barack yes. Obama had to get on TV and give this speech? We cannot have a society in which some dictator someplace can start imposing censorship here in the United States. Because if somebody is able to intimidate folks out of releasing a satirical movie, Imagine what they start doing when they see a documentary that they don't like or news reports that they don't like. Again, I, I'm sympathetic that Sony as a private company was worried about liabilities and this and that and the other. I wish uh, they'd spoken to me first. Uh, I, I would have told them, do not get into uh, a pattern in which you're intimidated by these kinds of criminal attacks. They caused a lot of damage. And we will respond. Uh, we will respond proportionally and we'll respond uh, in a place and time uh, and manner that we choose. Uh, it's not something that I will announce uh, here today at a press conference. I mean, to recap everyone's memory, so. Kim Jong-un was very mad about this fictional comedy made where James Franco and Seth Rogen go interview him. He hacked into Sony, causing absolute chaos, you know, causing massive turnover there, costing them a lot of money. Sony decided to pull the film and not show the interview at all for a very brief moment. And then that's when Barack Obama got on stage and gave the speech. And there was a moment where it almost felt like we might enter a war because yes. of the interview. And it is, it is astonishing to me what it says about this decade, that that was only five years ago, and I barely even remember that that happened. Well, it's so funny you bring that up. That was such a I, – I, I completely forgot about that film in the sense that I think it was – it was a scary. It was a scary film. I remember they released it on Netflix really quickly. Um, I know many people involved in that film, and and what a scary time it was for them, and 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 the effects of that for a little bit of time, and what it overshadows. One is that it's a it's a fun movie with really great performances. Randall Park is absolutely fantastic in that movie. I actually think James Franco gives an amazing performance as this kind of you know, Mario Lopez-esque entertainment reporter. There's a lot of really fun things in it. Um, and I really love that it it captures something that I think that Seth uh, Rogen and Evan Goldberg do a lot, which is like push boundaries. And it's a scary time. You know, we talk about, can we be funny anymore? Can we say stuff? And this is where we should be having that conversation. Can we push artistic boundaries? No, but, you know, we're talking about it like, hey, can we call so-and-so a such-and-such? Like, that that's not where you, we should be pushing boundaries. You should be pushing boundaries like this. And I love that this film is released and I love that it did get out and it is an important movie. And I think in the landscape of American cinema, you've not, now you've kind of, I know you haven't picked this, but now you kind of want to make me hang this up uh, on a shelf because I think it is important for what it did in our culture. No other film is like this in American culture in a big studio system with huge stars. No, not at all. Not at all. And I love it. There's such bravery to it. You know, I wrote a cover story for the LA Weekly on it when it came out and about comedy and politics in talking about things like Charlie Chaplin doing The Great Dictator, a film yeah. that I really love. And I think comedians 
really have this power of going after powerful people when they do it in this brilliant way of undermining them. Yeah. You know, of I, Charlie Chaplin's whole strategy with making fun of Hitler was to have him dancing with a little ball, making him a fool, making him look silly. You know, not making him this kind of larger-than-life evil satire figure, but, yeah. but showing him to be ridiculous. And that's exactly what the interview did as well. I think, I don't know, right now I feel like so much of our approach when it comes to comedy and dealing with horrible things happening in the world is just to kind of machine gun it and go big. But I think that the, the, when there's a lightness to it, even, it's just as effective, if not more effective. I totally agree with you. And and unfortunately, in the microscope of this moment, I think that too much weight was put on this film. Like, what was it saying? What was it really doing? And it's like, no, it's just a funny comedy. It's a it's a satire. Like, and and I think people wanted it to be more scathing than it was, and they weren't just looking at the simple comedy of it. And it would be an interesting movie to kind of revisit now and just be like, oh, I can enjoy this, you know, because it felt like it had to be more important than it actually was. It's true. It's true. But anyways, that's not what I picked. That's not what okay. I picked. Here, I'll do my first pick. Okay. My first pick is a film that actually was on that AFI list, and it is Nightcrawler. Great pick. Another one of my favorite films and a film that I I think about Jake Gyllenhaal all the time. And this is, you know, one of the, do I do, you? I think of all, <laughs> think the of time. all the time. No, I just think of him as Are being, you think you uh, him right now? oh, I love him. I just do think he's one of those, we talk about this with Scarlett Johansson, like he's again, one of these really fascinating performers who's always doing something different and interesting. And I love the choices that he makes and, and his, I think, performances sometimes go a little bit unnoticed, uh, under the radar a bit. And uh, I'm such a fan of him, and I've become a bigger fan of him based on his appearances on Howard Stern because he's so um, unaffected and funny. And he was also on Mystery Box with, like, Starley Klein. And just, like, you feel like, oh, this is, like, just a fun guy. He doesn't take himself too seriously. And I just love his energy and attitude so much. Yeah, totally. And I think Nightcrawler was just such a smart film. I mean, it's written oh. and directed by Dan Gilroy. I think it was his debut directorial film. Really? Yeah. It, you know, for people who haven't seen it, it's about a guy who um, decides to become a stringer. And what a stringer is, is they're these kind of news ghouls who listen to police yeah. scanners, figure out when there's accidents, robberies, break-ins, anything sort of dark and twisted that wants to be, that could be, that would be a huge hit on, on the late night news. And they run over there at their cameras and they sell their footage to whoever is the highest bidder. And this film, you know, we talk a lot about these kind of troubled characters. And I think Lou Bloom is very much in the history of a taxi driver or even of the Joker, somebody who yeah. the, the, the present day award-laden nominated film, The Joker, of somebody <laughs> trying to figure out what their place is when they don't have a moral compass. I pulled one clip from this movie that I love because this film also has a terrific performance by Rene Russo. Oh, she's amazing she's in amazing. it. She's amazing. She plays uh, his boss at the news station. She's also Dan Gilroy's wife, so I love that he gave her this terrific role. And this is a scene where she goes out for dinner with Lou, just assuming it's like an employee dinner, and he tries to blackmail her sexually. Let me put this politely. I only came out to dinner with you, Lou, purely as a professional courtesy. Thank you. I don't think it's any secret that I've single-handedly raised the unit price of your ratings book. Our ratings book price? <laughs> Whoa. I'm a very fast learner. We had a conversation where I specifically mentioned that. Do you remember that? Well, do you? Yes. 
I recently learned, for instance, that most Americans watch local news to stay informed. I also learned that the average half hour of Los Angeles television news packs all of its local government coverage, including law enforcement, budget, transportation, education, and immigration, into 22 seconds. <laughs> local crime stories, however, not only usually led the news, but filled 14 times the broadcast, averaging five minutes and seven seconds. KWLA relies heavily on such stories. With Los Angeles crime rates going down, I think that makes items like mine particularly valuable, like rare animals. <laughs> I can only imagine that your needs will increase during next month's rating sweeps period. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we certainly appreciate what you do. I mean, he is so good, and you brought up the Joker, and I'm, and it's it it's a great comparison, and and a really. I mean, it's like, I mean, we were talking about the Joker being grounded in the real world, but this is like, this character is, I mean, it's just as weird and, I don't know, it uh, makes me feel as uncomfortable as that character did. Yeah, and it is really funny that both Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal lost a ton of weight to play these men. You know, there's not yeah. really a reason why you would have to, but they both just chose to, to make them skinny and haunted. I mean, I think Nightcrawler is really our generation's network. Yeah. You know, and it gets into how cable news has changed even from the time of network. Network almost seems halcyon yeah. compared to what we have today. Well, did you ever see the movie Christine? I did see Christine. And Christine yeah. has like elements of this as well. It's, you know, the idea of like chasing, you know, what if it bleeds, it leads kind of stories. And this, you know, I, I mean, I, I prefer both of those films, especially this one over network. If you were to tell me, and I know this probably sacrilege and people are screaming at me right now, but I think that this film is is, uh, I mean, this is as, as iconic as that work. I don't know. But I, I definitely enjoy this movie more than that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if I could go that far either, although I'm tempted. But yeah. it did also have the bonus of giving us Riz Ahmed. Riz Ahmed. I did not know Riz Ahmed before oh, this yeah. movie. And I like that it gets into the economics of today. You know, it yeah. gets into working people doing anything to try to make money. I think there's more of the post-crash desperation in this film. Yeah. And I like that that seems palpable. It feels more gig economy. You know, we're in a gig economy world. And we uh, and I think Nightcrawler really taps into that. Uh, I totally agree. Well, these are you're really making me rethink uh, my pick, and now I'm like the pick that I was already wrestling with. I feel like I went with a safe choice. A brownie um, tail. What? A brownie tail. Yes. Um, you know the stories of the ponies are important <laughs> for what they're saying about society, and we can be cute, but we can also have a purpose, um, and that's something that I feel so much for myself. Um, no, I went with a movie that I really love, and um, and I think captures what I love about this director, um, which is the Grand Budapest Hotel. That was my second pick. Really? Yes. Go on. All right. Well, I. Now, I wrestled with it because, let me just get my disclaimer out of the way. Is it my favorite Wes Anderson movie? I don't know. I, don't, I think that I'm always going to wrestle between uh, Tenenbaums and Rushmore, right? Um, but Budapest Hotel is one that I really feel like I think about a lot. I think it, it captures a lot of the fun of things that I loved in Life Aquatic, but I don't necessarily love Life Aquatic. It's not my favorite one of his films. I think it has an amazing performance by Ray Fiennes in this film. I mean, it's such a, a, a beautiful film. And uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite films, which we talked about here on the show last year, Paddington. It has some elements of Paddington to it, especially the jail section, uh, where they are kind of running their little uh, mission. Um, but I just love this movie, and I think it looks so good. And it's 
it kind of captures a little bit of everything from Wes Anderson. And that's what I really like about it. I, I kind of feel like, you know, directors will kind of keep on remixing the same things. You know, we, you know, I think Martin Scorsese is taking elements of things and putting it all together and you get the Irishman. And I, and I feel like this is a good example of a director playing in the same ponds, playing with actors that he already has, getting into his own little quirks. And this is like the perfect dollhouse of a movie. And I think of it as like that. It just feels like you're in this little creation and it's not as uh, niche as Fantastic Mr. Fox, which I also love, but it also feels like a puppet master kind of manipulating all these characters. I I just, I really, uh, really, really like this movie. No, I'm 100% with you. Uh, I actually am not that huge historically of a Wes Anderson fan mm-hmm. because I feel like his films, you, you said kind of like a, a like a toy room or something. Yeah. I feel like they can get really airless. Okay. And before this movie, I was on a streak of just being really against him because I had seen Darjeeling Limited. I just really hate that yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. I'm not the biggest fan of that. No, and I felt like it just calcified everything he had been doing so wrong, which is caring more about the wallpaper than the characters and... Like, he has this thing that he does in a lot of his movies where something innocent or young or tangential dies, you know, whether it's a dog yeah. or a small Indian child, so that his white men in the lead can have the tiniest little bit of emotional growth, just the tiniest. Right. And Darjeeling Limited was literally a film where, like, these brothers are running around moaning over fake problems and all of these, like, local Indian people are carrying their baggage literally. And it's a comic point. And I was like, oh, Wes Anderson, I'm done with you. And then Grand Budapest Hotel, suddenly he felt like such a more mature filmmaker to me. Mm. Because if all, if if his interest has always been, I think, in building these beautiful worlds and in creating these tapestries, what he does with that, with the framing of Grand Budapest Hotel by like starting in the present and working your way back and working your way back to start to see the hotel the way that it was, is he builds this argument for why we as humans deserve beauty and why right. beauty itself is a value. And it's not just uh, it's not just like a cute framework. It's the reason for existing, you know? And he gives you this character of Ray Fiennes as a person trying to protect beauty against the cutesified Nazis that are trying to come in and yes. break down the system. And so it's this, it, he turns beauty into a political act. And I, I really admire that about this film. No, I think you understand why he is connected to those or that idea of 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 the minutia and the detail. And uh, yeah, it, I think that this is a really interesting film because as he's gone on as a filmmaker, he has continued to make... Uh, dollhouse type of movies. I also love the uh, the dog film as well, The Isle of Dogs. But it's, I do like Isle of Dogs. It's, yeah. it, but, it's, but it's very, um, I don't know, it, it just becomes very, very unique. And I feel like this is his, you know, in, in many ways, I mean, you know, there's something very accessible about this. There's something very European about this. There's something just really wonderful. It's just a wonderful movie. And, um, and I think it would be a really interesting argument to have, and maybe we should do it on one show, where we kind of push the films up against each other, like these, these the big ones that, uh, that get a lot of acclaim. Because I haven't really watched Rushmore in this back-to-back. And, I, and, and Tenenbaums, I always feel like a, a, such a strong connection to, because I love the family dynamic in that as well. But I think this, 
does it all. I think this, if you were to take one, this may have every sliver of what I like about Wes Anderson. Yeah, I mean, the cast in this one is just unreal. Oh my gosh. But yet he also gives us- F. Murray Abraham. Tony Revolori. You know, yes. He gives us his new face. And when I rewatched it, I was really struck by how much- energy he put into the subplot of Zero, the Tony Revolori character, being an immigrant, you know, being an immigrant Mm -hmm. from a place called the Federal Republic of Iraq. Yes. And so I pulled this scene because it felt just as relevant to me as when I saw it in 2014. And in in here, uh, Zero and Monsieur Gustave are on a train and they get stopped by the new zigzag crew, the Nazis. Well, hello there, chaps. Documents, please. With pleasure. It's not a very flattering portrait, I'm afraid. I was once considered a great beauty. Mm. What's the F stand for? Fritz? France. France. I knew it! He's making a funny face. That's a migratory visa with stage three worker status, France, darling. He's with me. Come outside, please. Now, wait a minute. Sit down, Zero. His papers are in order. I cross-referenced them myself with the Bureau of Labor and Servitude. You can't arrest him simply because he's a bloody immigrant. He hasn't done anything wrong. Stop it, Mr. Never mind, Mr. Gustav. Don't proceed. Ow! That hurt! You filthy goddamn pockmark fascist assholes! Take your hands off my lobby boy! I mean, and that seems just so shocking. You see him with a bloody nose. Yes. This man who's been so refined and so polite, finally cursing, bloody nose, this is what he's willing to fight for. And there's this line towards the end of the film that I just think is so beautiful, where um, they're talking about, like, what did this hotel mean to Monsieur, to Monsieur Gustave? Mm-hmm. And Grown Up Zero says, you know, to be frank, I think his world vanished long before he entered it, but he sustained the illusion with a marvelous grace. Oh, I love that. It's just beautiful. I'm so glad you picked this movie. Yeah, I love that. That's our first uh, our first uh, connection, our first handshake on this one. Brain connection. I love it. But before we move on to 2015, I just want to give out the quickest shout-outs to people who might be looking for something to rent from this yeah. year that they haven't seen. Um, Get On Up, we were talking about the best kind of style of musical mm. biopics. Get On Up, I think the James Brown one is one of the best things it's ever done. It and Rocketman are really similar. I love that film. Chadwick Boseman's amazing. I was so upset. I auditioned for a part in that movie. I wanted it so, so bad. Uh, I think it oddly went to Dan Aykroyd, so I don't think I was ever really <laughs> truly in contention for it. But uh, but I love I love that script so, so much. And my other two picks are also musical biopics of a sort. One of them is on a real person. Uh, mm-hmm. It's Frank. Did you see Frank? Oh, yes. I love Frank. It's a, it's a story of a real-life musician um, who wore a gigantic head uh, to cover up his real face. And there's this movie about identity. Michael Fassbender is the one underneath the head. It's written by uh, John Ronson, who's probably one of my favorite nonfiction journalists. He did The Men Who Stare at Goats, which is an incredible Incredible, book. Great book. Incredible book. And um, so you've been publicly shamed. Love that one. And the last one, this is probably the movie I've seen the most from this year, which is maybe crazy. But whenever it's on an airplane, it's always what I wind up watching, which is Beyond the Lights. Oh, interesting, because I had one that we have not talked about, and I thought it was definitely going to be that one. Tell me about Beyond the Lights. I don't know what that is. (laughs) Yeah, Beyond the Lights came and went, and it is, to me, just this delightful little movie. It's about a pop star who's very much, you know, shades of Rihanna, shades of Beyonce. She's played by Gugu Mbatha-Raw. And it's about 
her really just struggling with where she is in the industry, being pushed in one way to be more sexy, being pushed in another way. Her mother's played by Minnie Driver, who's fantastic in it. Machine Gun Kelly is in it as this musician she kind of has a fling with. And then also Nate Parker plays a man that she falls in love with. So depending on your feelings about Nate Parker, I'll just say that as a heads up. But Gugu Mbatha-Ra, she's in a gazillion movies. And I feel like people have not really given her this much I haven't life really and heard energy. It. Yeah. The costuming in this movie is beautiful. The music is great. I, I just think this movie is so fun and so fresh. And I've watched it probably seven times on an airplane. Wow. Um, well, the movie that I want to call out, and it's a movie that you, I hope you have seen, but I think it's a great, great film, um, which is The Edge of Tomorrow or Live, Die, Repeat, however you want to view it. It's a Tom Cruise film. It's kind of like, I mean, it's the action version of Groundhog Day. That's the most uh, pedestrian way of describing this movie. It's such a fun sci-fi film. Um, Emily Blunt is fantastic in it as well. Doug Liman directed it. Um, it's based on, um, I believe, a Japanese anime. Uh, and it's such a fun, fun, fun movie. It's, it, it is, it's a movie that came out to stellar reviews and zero box office. Uh, like, again, they changed the title because no one saw it. Um, and then people have been seeing it and I think it looks so similar to another Tom Cruise movie I believe that one was called Oblivion where it was like Tom yeah, Cruise and as Wally was real snoozy yeah and um, you know Tom Cruise for the most part is always putting out pretty solid films like box office popcorn films and this is so so good and it's very rare that a film that is released and flops uh, gets a sequel. This movie actually gets a sequel. I'm so excited for the sequel of this film. Uh, but Edge of Tomorrow, if you've not seen it, you got to see it. It's such a good, fun film uh, and and a great uh, a great pick for 2014. It is good. Uh, my last, last, last thing. Yeah. I think 2014 was a really great year for this new wave of horror that I love so much. Mm. Because you've got, of course, It Follows. You touched on The Babadook. Unfriended was really fun. Unfriended oh, yeah. 2 was kind of nonsense, but Unfriended 2 was great. And if people haven't seen The Guest, I really like The I Guest. I love The Guest. Such Ooh. a good movie. Oh, Dan Stevens, when he comes so, out of the bathroom yes. with all of that shower mist. Oh, my God. And the music is so beautiful. And they also made Your Next, which is a great horror film. But The Guest is is fun. And it was one of those films that like one night on iTunes, I was like, no, see what this is. And I loved it. Yeah. And really it's fun sexy. Film. It's rare to see yes. a movie with a little bit of sex appeal like that. And beautifully, beautifully shot. All right. So Amy, we've pretty much mentioned every film in 20, <laughs> uh, 2014. It was a good year. It was a good year. Um, and Birdman now are the unexpected virtue of ignorance being of course the best, the best. <laughs> Twenty fifteen, a year where thirty-nine selfie-related deaths are confirmed. What? Yep. Thirty-nine selfie-related deaths. Ten billion Keurig pods were produced. Microbeads, a little abrasive plastic beads, are banned because of plastic in the ocean. Thank God. Uh, added to the dictionary are the words mass hole, twerk, faux shizzle, stanky, and twitterati. Can we take any of those out? I mean, we Who should. Who says Twitterati? Faux shizzle needs to come out immediately. <laughs> wow, Snoop Dogg has words for you, and they're just fush nizzle. Uh, <laughs> There's a sad word. <laughs> um, I want to take my word out, fush <laughs> Neiman Marcus's holiday catalog featured a $150,000 motorcycle that comes with a two-day ride along the California coast with Keanu Reeves. 
The top song is Uptown Funk by Mark Ronson featuring Bruno Mars. And the Golden Raspberry went to the Fantastic Four. That was the gritty reboot. And uh, it was a shared award with the 50 Shades of Grey, which I don't agree with. I don't agree with that being the worst picture of the year. Uh, the losers that year uh, were Paul Blart, Mall Cop 2, Pixels, and Jupiter Ascending. And these are, again, we're using this as just a basis to mention all the movies that came out. But what did the AFI deem as their top films of this year? The AFI deemed as their top films of the year. The Big Short, Bridge of Spies, Carol, Inside Out, Mad Max Fury Road, The Martian, Room, Spotlight, Star Wars The Force Awakens, and Straight Outta Compton. Wow, Force Awakens gets on that list. That's a very interesting call because they don't normally go in that direction of like a real big popcorn film. And I think the reason why it gets on that list is probably because of the iconic nature of star wars itself and you know it because uh, i would i would m- imagine and, and you know someone can do this research but the afi did not put the phantom menace on the list did they well we will never know because they did not start doing these annual top 10 lists until 2000 oh wow all right well the that's year 2000 wow and uh well i would be uh very confident in guessing that none of the prequels probably made that list but i'm i'm surprised that the afi kind of opened it up that way um hmm yeah. This is interesting. Uh, well, they did put Lord of the Rings on that first year, although that would make sense because yes. it's on the official list. Well, I love this year. Uh, this is another great year. We're in a we're in a film. We're in a good film state. I think 2015 is great. I think there's one clear film to me. So maybe we will put that on the side for a second and talk about some of the the films that uh, that were out that we loved. And I want to, I'll start off and just say that I love The Lobster. I love The Lobster. Lobster is a a great film. Um, And it's one of those films that is, I think, upsetting to a lot of people. Uh, I've talked to people who are, uh, who really can't take it. So I have to like check myself sometimes because uh, maybe I like things that are a little bit darker, but this is Yorgos Lanthimos. um, And I'm, hopefully pronouncing that correctly, but I am a fan of what he does. I, I am all in on his films. I've gotten to see a premiere of, of, of sacred deer, which was being in that audience. The crowd went bananas. Uh, it was <laughs> insane. The favorite we talked about a lot last year, uh, such a great, uh, film, but the lobster is such a uniquely quirky film with Colin Farrell, just, doing a great job in it. And if um, basically, if you need to know anything about it, it's a dystopian society in the future where if you don't find love um, or if you're not in love, you basically will be turned into an animal of your choice. Uh, and, and Colin Farrell is put into this like facility where he has to find love within 45 days. And if he can't, he'll be turned into a lobster. And Which it's, he chooses because he says they're blue buds and they also can live for 100 years. I mean, but, but why would you want to? Why would you want to? Do you have the sentience of a man in a lobster body? It seems like a hellish nightscape. You're chilling at the bottom. You got big claws. Could All be right. fun. Could like, be fun. Hiding, cutting a fish in half. Um, I, I think that, you know, obviously the favorite is definitely the most commercial of his films, but this is, I think, my favorite of his films. I think I actually feel the same way. It's tough. It's tough because I do love the favorite so, 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 so much, yes. but the concept behind the lobster is just so brilliant. And then the places he goes with it, mm. where you start to look at all the couples and that are acting like they're happy and it gets into, are they really that happy? Are they really that committed? Is, is partnership just 
a phony act for many of these people. Yes, I know. You have John C. Riley being incredible in this film. He is just so hangdog and all these people who are desperately trying to find love in different ways. You have the callous woman that nobody can tame and who just hunts in order to never have to fall in love with anybody and how brutal she is. Oh. And Colin Farrell just himself is one of my fa- my favorite actors as well. He Such a good performer. Right? Going back to, I mean, going back his entire career, but for me, I think I fell in love with him for real after In Bruges, when he can yes. just play funny, pathetic, sad, heroic, everything all in the same moment. You know, these characters that you just can never admire, but you care for, and you know that terrible things are going to happen to them. I totally agree. Like, I feel like sometimes this fall from grace, because he definitely had a fall from grace, you know, um, helps these actors find their rhythm in doing something so unique and different. You have other actors who I think gravitate towards it. Like, I think Leo DiCaprio, I think when he plays the character, I call him Leo, uh, <laughs> when, when uh, DiCaprio kind of plays these characters, they're so fun to watch. I, I like him more doing that. I also like Brad Pitt kind of doing that. But I feel like he has really found a way to make all of his leading men very charactery, very interesting, and uh, I'm I'm such a fan. Yeah, he's kind of Gyllenhaalish, right? Both yeah. of them ascended to really big blockbusters that weren't good fits. Yes, and then took I think more control of their career. And we're like, these this is the person I want to be. These are the roles I want to do, and I'm going to use the fact that I am now an A-list name to make these films get greenlit, which I really admire. I totally agree. That is uh, an excellent pick. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, that's, you know, one of the ones that I really, really, truly love. Um, although I don't think it's going to be my favorite. Um, I mean, there's so, this is a year that I want to, like, talk about them all. Uh, any ones that are jumping out to you that I just want to, you want to throw some uh, love at? Well, yeah, the first one on my list, I, I came down to choosing The Lobster or this one, and I went with this one. Oh, interesting. But I think there's a lot of similarity between them, and that's Anomalisa, the Charlie Kaufman Ooh, film. Ooh, interesting choice. I love Anomalisa. And, okay. you know, Anomalisa is, you know, a stop-motion puppet film. It's so ordinary in so many ways and so deeply weird in others. Yeah. It's about a man who makes his living giving writing books about how to be a better salesman. His name is uh, Michael Stone. And he walks through the world going to a convention in Cincinnati where he's going to give a lecture uh, downstairs at the basement. And what you realize is everyone in this room has the same face and the same voice. And he's living in this monotony nightmare. And he's kind of a narcissistic, self-involved man surrounded by people he doesn't consider to even be fully human, including his wife and his kid. And then one day he happens across a woman named Lisa, voiced by Jennifer Jason Leigh, who sounds different. And he just falls for her, and he falls for the excitement of her. And as the film goes on, you start to realize, is it that she's special or that he's just such a narcissist? He's only waking up slowly to the fact that other people are real. And can he even sustain that? I love that. It's beautiful. Here's a little clip from it. This is him at home with his family, and everybody here besides him is voiced by Tom Noonan. What is it? A toy? It's it's a doll. It's for girls. It's it's a girl no, doll. No, it's a toy. No, no, it's, an antique. It moves. It's stupid. It's stupid, it's and the a, face is a, broken. It's an antique slugger. That's part of its charm. No, I don't get it. I don't get it. What are these 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 words here? I don't know. It's in Japanese. Press some buttons. It moves. What else did you get me? Well, I didn't get you anything else. Surprise! Jesus, that scared me. Welcome home, honey. Surprise party. I don't. <sighs> what are all these people? Michael, it's great to see you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thanks. Who are they? It's it's everybody, honey. What's it doing now, Daddy? I don't recognize any of them. Michael, how are you? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. How are you, Daddy? What's coming out of the toy? I don't know. God, Michael, it, it looks like semen. I don't know. I just got it at the store. I don't know. What's what's semen, mummy? Oh, it's it's just a liquid, Henry. It's just a liquid. 
Uh, yeah, I forgot about that joke. I love that. I love that. But yeah, I just think this film is so beautiful. You know, it came to life as a radio play because that's the only way that, that yeah. Kaufman could have conceived of doing it. You know, something where you can imagine that everybody has the same face yeah. and the same voice. And then he brought it to life with these puppets. He spent years doing it. And it just, there's a psychic horror to it. A moment when he rips off his face and he sees the gears underneath him that make him identical to everybody else. It's just a really brutal film at that, I mean, I think what it has in common a little bit with The Lobster is... Both Charlie Kaufman and Yorgos Lanthimos are doing these very big kind of stagey ideas, these high concept ideas to get into the worst little bits of our soul. Yeah. You know, the parts of us that make us think, am I too self-involved? You know, am I too cold to really love anybody? And that they get at that through this expressionistic way of making a film. And, you know, that's my milkshake. I mean, look, that's Synecdoche to me. I mean, that's one of my favorite uh, films. No, that is my favorite oh, film. Time. Love. I mean, it's such a beautiful film, and it's it's an upsetting it's an upsetting movie. But it does it like it asks these very big questions. I mean, Charlie Kaufman, I think, is always wrestling with these big big issues, and uh, you know, and it's interesting because you know, I think being John Malkovich put him in this like, kind of fun poppy world, but he's an adaptation too. But he, I think, I find a joy in the. The depression or mm -hmm. the exploration of depression that he kind of really does so so well. Yeah, he I, makes it okay to talk about it. Yeah, and he makes it really visually interesting and, and exciting. And I will say there is nobody more depressed than seeing Charlie Kaufman on the award circuit. Oh my god, yeah. Oh, he 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 spent the whole year. I would run into him at all the events, you know, just like where they'd make him go out and shake yeah. hands and like maybe this will hopefully beat inside out, which of course it didn't. Um, although I think it could have and maybe should have, uh, but just I like having to have. shake hands with all the Golden Globe voters killed, like you could, oh, his absolute misery is kind of wonderful to behold, just like it is here in this movie. I also wrestled with, and I know this is not an, um, uh, an American film and we've kind of talked around that, but I really love this movie, Son of Saul, which mm. is a great, I mean, you want to talk about depressing. I mean, that's a very hard film to watch directed by Lazo Nemes and it is uh, I'll just read you the the uh, the Google uh, like bio for it which is like during World War II a Jewish worker at Auschwitz tries to find a rabbi to give a child a proper burial so that's what you're in store for um, it is a hard movie to watch it's a Hungarian film and it's I I I just think it's a, a film worth seeking out and 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 seeing and you know being in the proper headspace for it, um, you know. But I I think it's a, a beautiful beautiful film. Um, and if that is too uh, dark for you, um, I'll talk about another film uh, that involves uh, some death, and that is what we do in shadows, which I I think oh, is I a great. Movie. Uh, a great film, a mockumentary of vampires uh, living in this house. A fun movie directed uh, by Taika Waititi. It's great, uh, great film. Just great fun film. Uh, you should definitely check that out. Yeah, it has absolutely, number one, the best sandwich joke of all time. Mm -hmm. And number two. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> the best eBay joke of all time. And um, I, my boyfriend and I use the eBay joke all the time. Do it for me right now. Oh. I'm just over here doing some dark bidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So let's get into your pick and my pick as we've now given a lot of attention to other great films of this year. So what is your number one pick? My number one pick from this year is 
one of my other absolute favorite directors of this decade who did more great films, but I'm picking this one, Sean Baker and Tangerine. Ooh, that's a great pick. That was actually one of the films I really wanted to talk about. That movie is fantastic. Tell me why you love it so. Ah, I mean, it's terrific. Everything about it is terrific. Like, Sean Baker is a really special filmmaker to me because what he does is he figures out little subsets of American life that haven't had films made Mm -hmm. about them. I mean, before he did this movie, he did a film called Takeout, which is about Chinese delivery men. After this film, he made The Florida Project, which is about, Mm -hmm. you know, a group of people living out of this one motel and a man who tries to keep everything together. And between that, he made Snowbird too, right? Yeah, I never saw Snowbird. I need to see that. Yeah, I didn't either, but I just, I see it right now on his IMDb page. I don't know how that one kind of escaped. Yeah, and he also made Starlet, which is about actresses out here. Yeah. I mean, he just has this way of getting into the skin of these characters that he's interested in, making films that feel honestly kind of anthropological. Yes, I totally agree. And I feel like wasn't the whole thing with Tangerine that was shot on like iPhone cameras? And and there's something about the way that this film was shot. And uh, it feels to me, to go back to Richard Linkletter, like, like the way that slacker felt like it just felt like we're in this world like you're being dropped in and you're getting to experience these very unique characters and i think you know um at the time no one was talking about this culture and and it seems so like aware that he understood that you know in a weird way he's like you know, he's shining a light on a culture that I think has been in the dark for such a long time. And it's, it really is, it's an important movie for when it came out, but it's also important for a movie for what it does. Yeah, very much. I think it's important across the board for everything. It's important because it was made with an iPhone 5S. You know, I think that's what gave it, gave it to me the tiny bit of edge that made me put this forward over Florida Project later on. Mm. Um, and so he's kind of saying to all young filmmakers, you want to make a movie, you can. You know, you, yes. can ab- you can absolutely do this. And not that many people have managed to take him up on it yet. But he had real-life transgender actresses, Mia Taylor and Kitana Rodriguez, playing, you know, versions of themselves, but not completely themselves. I mean, I did interview them once at a Shakey's Pizza. And uh, uh, Kiki Rodriguez was, like, jumping up and down on the booth the whole time. And she had mysterious things in her bag that I was like, oh, dear. Um, right. Oh, dear. There's a lot of energy happening here. But that's very much like Slacker, too. Like these very bizarre, not bizarre, but these very unique people that, yes, they are acting, but you are also getting a version of them. Exactly. Here, let's play a clip so we can hear their voices. And then I want to keep talking about it. Okay. Girl, wait, wait, wait. I cannot do this. I cannot do this. It's too much drama. You guys just come out here and give me all this information and have me go handle it by myself. You're the one to me anyway. Okay, 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 okay. okay. I will go with you under one condition. You must promise me that there's not going to be any drama. Because as soon as there's some drama, I'm out of there. I promise. I promise. Look at me in my eyes and promise. I promise no drama, Alexandria. Come on. What the fuck is he looking at? Also, you know, as a big Los Angeles lover, despite you carpetbaggers from New York coming in and making oh my, my city God. expensive. Still, still, uh, still on this. When I first moved here, you could get a two-bedroom for $1,100. Yes, it's our fault. It's our fault. $1,100. You know what? Downtown high-rises are pretty much empty. It's the it's these people that are building these unaffordable housing. It is. It's, it's corporations. There's no need for all the housing that they're building. It's a high-level housing. Yeah. No one can afford it. Yeah, nobody with money wants to live in a tiny box. But that they did it to your city, then you came over here, yes. and then it happened to our city. Sure, sure, sure. Save it for urban planning podcast, yeah, Amy. We'll get, we'll get Hayes back. Yeah. Uh, but no, I haven't seen a film that I feel like captures L.A., my L.A., the way mm. that Tangerine captures my L.A. I used to live really close to Santa Monica Boulevard. Yeah. 
yeah. where a lot of the film takes place. And so to see an LA that looks like my city, it's not just the palm trees and the beach, but to see my subway station, you're my old subway station. Now I live by a closer one. I love the yeah. subway, but a film that goes on the subway, a film that it knows what our city looks like, a film that, you know, has characters who are Armenian, which never seems to happen in film. Ever. Absolutely. And it just, it just has so much energy and so much life. And I think it's really a landmark in where film canon should be going. I think it helped change the course of the kind of indie films that do exist. Even if they're not being made on an iPhone, I don't know why they're not. They should be. I I mean, look, I think there's always this idea that anyone can do anything, but you have to then be able to finish that thing and then also be supported by people who see your thing. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I think it's, it's, very easy to say, just make your movie. But you know, I you know, I know that Mark Duplass was very helpful to him in getting that film out and there. He and he made a few before and it yeah. got into Sundance and yeah. It yeah. helps. It all helps. I mean, but you know what? Make your stuff. I always am a big believer in, in making your stuff and, and if you come from you know, obviously there's privileged backgrounds that allow you to make your stuff and get people to see your stuff. But uh I think that we can tell personal stories and and they are rewarded by this system that we're in, especially in the Sundance system and and South by Southwest. And we can tell these like smaller stories. You're right. And he's not just taking his iPhone and recording his friends. It's not like a mumblecore movie. No. What what, What always comes across to me when I see Sean Baker's work is that he feels like a filmmaker who is listening all the time. Mm. You know, it doesn't feel like, here's my vision that I am imposing on yeah. you. Here's what I think, and this is how the world is. He studies how other people think the world is, and he lets their characters do the talking from listening to these kind of people. Yeah. It doesn't. It, it never feels like ham-handed. It always feels like half documentary. I mean, Nanook of the North is a film that I kind of compare it to in my head because that was a film that presented itself like a documentary and wasn't. It was very fictionalized. And he kind of feels like he's working in a bit of that same... Yeah. That same universe, you know? And it's, he's just, there's not that many, there's nobody else like him. This will go not nicely into my pick, but I think it will, it kind of complements it. I think it's, it's about uh, a director who also is very unique and he's a filmmaker who, you know, also focuses on, you know, small subsects and, and creates something that is visually stunning. And, uh, and I think, you know, we can all look to all the important uh, people there in his films, like Immortan Joe and The Dag and Splendid and The Bullet Farmer or Nux and our lead character of Max who says, my name is Max and my world is fire and blood. I am talking about Mad Max Fury Road, which is, I think, hands down the movie of 2015. I mean, visually a stunning insane experience. This movie, uh, I mean, it kind of blew me away. And I know I've talked about a few action films as we've talked about here, but this movie kind of transcends action films because I do think that George Miller, uh, who comes back in 2015 to direct a sequel to Mad Max, a movie that he started in the 70s and comes back in such a way and kind of redefines a genre and a look and and manages to merge practical effects and digital effects in this roller coaster of a ride, which is basically just a car race. Like it is, it is, you know, how people will say, well, it's, they're just singing or dancing. It's like, this is a, uh, this is a chase scene with amazing performances. Uh, Charlize is epic in this film and to just look at her career and to see her put this performance next to her performance in Young Adult you know, very rarely do you have an actress of that kind of versatility to kind of tackle both of these things. But this movie 
it just blew me away as a, just from a visual standpoint, if there was no dialogue and there is very little dialogue in this film, uh, it is just complete world building, uh, unique and special. And it feels like everything that we've been talking about so far, like the Charlie Kaufman-esque, the unique ideas. It, it's also these big blockbuster ideas. It, it's kind of this amazing merging of the independent filmmaker and the big budget Hollywood filmmaker. And I don't think there is a better example than this of the merging of those two worlds. I think you definitely see it, you know, with Taika bringing a sense of humor to Thor and things like that. And James Gunn, I think, bringing very unique things. But this is, this is an indie film on a, you know, a $200 million campus. I don't know. There's something about it that feels like, what? That, like the images in this movie are bananas. And, and people went crazy for it. And I think that it just shows how far we can push people out of their comfort zones. We don't have to make the same old stuff and to engage a crowd. So yeah. that's, that's my pick for this I love year. that pick. I mean, if it wasn't insensitive that this reference involves water, I would say that this film felt like an ice bath to everything that's been going wrong with action movies. Yes. It was like, you're all CG, you're all phony, all of these backdrops look so fake, none of this matters at all to me. And here it's like, boom, what if this actually felt dangerous again? What if you felt any danger in an action film? And that's yeah. all here. And yeah, I mean, I think George Miller even cast this a little bit like an indie film. You know, of course, like... Of course, you know, Charlize is a major star. Of course, Tom Hardy's a major star. But the people in the around her, he cast Abby Lee, who's um, a model who I think does really interesting art house work whenever yeah. she's cast in a movie. She's fantastic. And every time she pops up, I'm like, oh, that girl actually could be a star. Nicholas Holt is in here. He's also got... Um, Riley Keough, like he's yeah. very intelligent. Zoe Kravitz. Zoe Kravitz. It's, it's, and you know, it's a great, it's just a fun way we talk. I mean, and look, well, I, not to beat a dead horse, but this idea of the Marvel movie and stuff like that, like we can find this middle ground of making exciting things and people will respond to it, but you need someone, and look, this is a sequel. This is a, or a reboot or what, I don't know how even, it is a sequel, but it's a different actor playing it. So it has like a James, Whatever it is, it is, I think the only way it gets made is because it is part of a legacy film. But it would be so exciting to keep on doing this kind of stuff. Can we blow it out? Can we make something that feels real? I, I think that what people are responding to with The Mandalorian, too, are the like the practical things. Like Baby Yoda, and not to go back to Baby Yoda, but... Is a, is a puppet. Like, Somebody people already has see a tattoo of Baby Yoda holding a can of White Claw. No, I don't I like don't, that. Don't like oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, <laughs> Have you God, seen that? Oh, it's on no, your show, too. No, no, no I don't want to see it. it. I'm no. going to get it. I'm going to get oh, it. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Um, but, I mean, this is also a movie that I think, you know, that talks about, you know, it's it's a very uh, feminist film, you know, which is surprising. You know, we, you know, I think, you know, you wouldn't expect that or, or it kind of hits you in a different way. You know, it, I think it, you know, it just shows, it shows that you can tackle very big issues and still make it fun and still make it exciting uh, for a large group of people. Well, yeah. And I feel like what sets it apart from a lot of the other big avenger kind of things is so many big blockbusters feel, oh, here's, here's the tattoo. Hold mm -hmm. on. Here you go. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, thank God the White Claw is mostly white, so you can just knock that out in a year. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um... I think so many giant, 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 big budget films feel very focus group to death, where you yes. can feel all the quadrants being checked off and represented. Mm -hmm. Mad Max Fury Road feels like it comes from one person's very fucked up brain. Yes. 
like you, Guillermo del Toro. It's like yeah. only George Miller can make this. Only Guillermo can make his films. It's like that's it. Exactly, and I don't know why it's hard for studios to realize if something has its own personality, that is that is just as good, if not better, than making something that you think appeals to everybody. Because I think they always think it's an anomaly. I think you know when like Sex and the City hits, like, well, oh, we're surprised. Oh, but then Girls Trip hits. Oh, we're surprised. Oh, like like it were uh, Bridesmaids. It's oh, we're surprised. They're always surprised, but it's like you know it's. Because of what I think happens is something hits and it's good and it's from a vision and then the studio goes, let's make money. So let's rush things that are not as well-defined out there to capitalize on getting more of that money. And then they base their next move on the failures of the things that weren't as well-conceived and then you're fucked. And then that's it. And then, then you're like, well, they don't work all the time. It's like, no, no more no. hot tub time machines. Yeah. Uh, nobody wants to see hot tubs anymore. But no, by the I'm way, kidding, I'm kidding, but I mean, but, but hot tub time machine is a great example of Yes, that works. So we don't need to rush out more time travel things. We need to like, or we don't need to rush out things that like call back to the 80s. We need to just make our own thing that's unique. Yeah, the, we need to trust the brain that gave us that idea in the first place. Right. And then say, what do you want to do else? Yes. Not, you have to do this again. Or find the next person who has a unique idea that you don't, that doesn't make any sense on paper. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like I've been sounding like I'm bagging on Hot Tub Time Machine, and I love that first movie. No, it's super fun. I mean, but uh, but that's my pick for this year. I mean, it's it's a it's it's such a fun big movie, and we didn't even talk about uh, you know two other movies that I think are important in this year as well, which is. Um, I do believe this is the year that Ex Machina comes it out. Is, yeah, there's Such, a lot of films about love being weird and inhuman. Yeah, I mean that's a great movie. I think it exposes a lot of people to Oscar Isaac in a way in a way that like you're like oh he's you know like he's kind of like always on the Oscars, but I think that movie like makes him pop. But the movie that I want to talk about a little bit and I wanted to hear your opinion about it was The Big Short, a movie that is on the AFI list. It's a movie like The Social Network that is talking about something important, and this is a movie that I think what I love about Adam McKay is he is has a comedic background so he can always bring comedy to um to some heavier topics and some topics that are hard to understand even in a movie like the other guys i think this you know kind of making the the crime something that's actually more relatable and, and kind of helped i don't know just shine a light on these things and and big short is a great example i think of Really explaining a crisis that no one really understood. We said housing crisis, right? Well, what, what does that mean? And where do these people go? And and I think he took something that is boring uh, and made it interesting, or you know, or like made it interesting to watch. You know, I think and I think in in other hands, and I think that you know, I think that in the social network they did it through character, and I think in this movie they actually do it through facts. I mean, they do it through character. It's really well directed. But these fun breakdowns of having the, you know, people look to camera and go, this is what we're talking about. Like, it, it goes in, we don't expect you to be this smart. You, like, it, all, it almost like lets the audience be like, oh, okay, we, you, we are all on the same page. I don't know. There's something really uh, wonderful about the way that he treated that movie. And I think it's an important movie because I think it is an important time in our, in our in American culture what happened in our economy. Yeah, that film definitely feels like one I want to put a pin in and come back to again like we did with Social Network. Yeah. And say, like, how do I feel about you even after more time has gone by? Because you're right. I I had no idea. I could not understand the housing crisis. I'm a renter. I don't yeah. know. No, yeah. but I mean, and but you, but everything gets distilled into a word, a phrase, a talking point. And this movie, I think, does a good job of just going, well, let, let, let's just lay it out. And it, they make it entertaining. And you see, you know, characters like Max Greenfield's character in Florida and, and how he is kind of working the housing market. And you see how you see it on every level. Um, 
And again, just amazing performances by Ryan Gosling in this. And, and Steve Carell is fantastic in it. And, uh, you know, it's, and again, I think Christian Bale does a, an amazing job, just all around solid, solid performances and, and make something that shouldn't be fun and a little bit homeworky, really engaging. Yeah, it is fun. I mean, this movie came out, I think, around the time as 99 Homes, too, that Michael mm-hmm. Shannon movie that was also about, like, how the housing crisis infecting people. You had Andrew Garfield showing up in it again. Like, I like these movies that are trying to talk about the present and yeah. trying to make us understand what what everything is. How do you make nonfiction engaging as fiction? Because you can't shortchange this. You can't, like, simplify it. And I think that the idea is, like, well, tell a small story. If it's just about this person, then it's only through the eyes of this person. But this movie really tells it in the scope that it was. And that's a hard job. And I think that's why, you know, he teams up with Charles Randolph uh, and McKay here to write this screenplay, uh, who, someone who has a background in telling stories based in real in real moments, whether it's Bombshell, which is coming out this year, uh, or The Interpreter, uh, you know, or Love and Other Drugs about the inventor of Viagra, the, the life of David Gale. These are all these, he finds uh, humanity, and but able to tell a large scale story in those, in those, uh, in those stories. <laughs> I love that. You know, before we completely wrap up and leave, yes. I did want to say there's two foreign films that ha- that came out during the scope of everything that mm-hmm. we were talking about in this episode that I just want to give the tiniest plug to because they went very unrecognized when they came out. And they're yeah. two of my favorite films from this entire period. The first one is from 2013 and it's called Nothing Bad Can Happen. Mm. And it is unbelievable. It is unbelievable. It's the story of a kind of Christian teenager in Germany who's a little bit of like a punk rocker, a little bit innocent. He's one of those kind of traveling around in a van, living off the land, living off canned foods, not owning very much, but being a very devout Christian and trying to inspire people. And he winds up crashing at the house of this German family who get into, the dad especially, get into kind of this battle of wills, trying to break his will towards his religion. And it's based on a true story. It is beautiful and so dark and such a gorgeous film. And the lead actor in it, I I think he's just terrific. He's got this, like, angelic little blonde curls and these blue eyes. His name is Julius Feldemeyer. Anyway, it's directed by um, a female screenwriter who also wrote her name's Katrine Gebe. And this film's just amazing. And I feel like if people saw this, they would not regret it, even though it's it can be a hard watch. All right. I'm very excited about that. That's like, you, you, <laughs> I you, never get to talk about this film. I'm no, sorry. I love it. I'm excited about it. And the second one I was thinking I also wanted to mention because, you know, we have— Birdman up in here, you know, yeah. just kind of like fake one trick shot, which I think is a really easy way to get everybody's attention. That's happening again with 1917. My favorite one trick movie yeah. is actually, I think it is actually a legit one trick movie. I don't even think they do cut in it. And it's a Spanish film called uh, Victoria. Oh, interesting. It's so good. It came out in 2015. And it's about this girl who's kind of a, an exchange student. I think she's actually living in Germany. The film might be made by Germans. Again, maybe I just like Germans. But... um she meets this kind of group of guys towards the end of a night. She's been out drinking, and the night takes crazy turns. Ooh. It is beautiful. The actress in it, she's kind of, kind of the kind of the person that you sense almost like popping up now in Bond movies or something. Yeah, as a little bit of a character, it is so spectacularly done for almost no money that it is just one of the most astonishing movies I've ever seen in my life. And I don't want to spoil anything about Ooh. the plot because it's completely surprising. I but love there that. is one minute, I will just say there is one minute where she kind of stops and plays the piano in the middle of everything. <gasps> oh. um, well, Victoria. You, um, it's interesting. You're talking about 
like a one night movie. Did you ever see that Woody Harrelson movie Lost in London that was like shot I all in like one did. take or not not one take, but I think it was like in literally in one night. Yeah. I really that came out in 2017. I really want to watch that as well. Like I, I'm, they seem like they're very different, <laughs> but uh, but I'm still interested. And you know what? Before we leave uh, and uh, before we kick it off to our uh, our second to last episode uh, of the best of the decade, I want to give a shout out to Sicario, another movie I just really loved. And, and again, it's not a movie that you would maybe necessarily put up on this list, but it's a, one of those just really well done films came out in 2015 and uh, uh, Dennis Villeneuve, who does, I think, fantastic films. I love Prisoners, uh, dark movie, did Blade Runner. We talked about that last I'm year. I'm allergic to him. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. You didn't even like Sicario? No. Okay. No. Yeah, I liked Arrival. Arrival is the one that I liked. Arrival is one of those films where I saw it and I was like, you're okay. And then I saw it right after Trump got elected. And I was like, it's all about how we can't communicate with each other. And then I really loved it. All right. There we go. All right. Uh, So, Amy, um, I know we've talked about a lot of movies. And it may even be an unfair question to ask. But is there Simpson clips of any of these films that we've talked about? (laughs) Once again, like last week, there is no direct direct homage to these specific mm-hmm. films, but there is a general loving homage. Okay. So we're going to play three clips right now in a row. The first one I consider an homage to her. The second one I consider an homage to Nightcrawler. And the last one I consider an, an, an homage to Anomalisa. It is performed with puppets. I hate this my pod. I can't watch movies on a screen this small. And the music today, don't get me started. I said, don't get me started. Come on, isn't someone going to get me started? Tonight on Eye on Springfield, just miles from your doorstep, hundreds of men are given weapons and trained to kill. The government calls it the Army. But a more alarmist name would be the Killbot Factory. Well, I won't interrupt your holiday any longer. Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good... Pop star slash fashionista Katy Perry. What are you people doing in my boyfriend Moe's bachelor pad? <gasps> That's right, she's into puppets. Just what's going on here? Fine, I'll come clean. <gasps> it's a Christmas miraculum. Amy, this conversation with you about movies of the decade has been amazing, but we're going to take a momentary pause in it. We're going to go away from it for one week to talk about a movie that has been at the top of many people's lists for many a decade. I'm talking about the original Star Wars, and we're doing this because next week, The Rise of Skywalker comes out. That's right, the end of the Skywalker trilogy, and we thought, what better way to celebrate the end by talking about the very beginning? That's right, we are breaking down Star Wars next week. The time has come, and we have a question for you Who is your favorite obscure Star Wars character? I'm not talking about the main ones. I know we all love Lando. We all love Chewbacca. Or if you're British, you say Chewbacca. Uh, But I'm talking about the the ones on the side, like the Lobot, the guy who's, you know, Lando's right-hand man. I want to hear, you know, your salacious crumbs. Give me your favorite side character, droid, human, maybe even a character that doesn't even speak. I want to hear why you love them, why they caught your attention. Give us a call at 
747-666-5824 and tell us your favorite obscure Star Wars character. And you know what? I'm going to open it up to the entire canon. So whatever character calls out to you, what's that weird one that speaks to you? I, I know for me, I like those guys who scan uh, the files uh, on the first Star Wars movie. They're the guys who carry the crate. They're not in Stormtrooper costumes. They're just like dudes who who scan. They're like the vacuum dudes. Um, so think hard and be creative and give us a call at 747-666-5824. Next week, it's Star Wars. Is it available for streaming? Yeah, you bet it is. But which version are we watching? That's the real question. And I'm going to watch the Disney Plus version. Uh, there are versions online that get you back to the no special effects version. I don't think that the lack of special effects or who shot who are going to really play the biggest part of our conversation because that's you know, retrofitting on a classic. I think we're going to talk about the classic film. Uh, so watch whatever version you prefer, and uh, we'll get into it next week. So Disney Plus has a beautiful uh, a beautiful version of it with a little McClunky added to it, which I think a lot of people have been talking about. But uh, there are some places online where you can actually find the uh, the unspecialized versions. Maybe we'll even post a link to that. I don't know if we can legally do that, so we'll see. Um, all right, we'll see you next week for Star Wars. false walmart has eye care true stop by walmart to save and browse top designer frames right where you already shop and they accept most insurance welcome to easy eye care welcome to your walmart